What can you give a man with no hair that he will never part with? Are you ready? A comb. <laughs> I love these brain teasers. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability, episode 46. I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. Today's topic is something for all of you carnivores out there. We're going to talk about eating meat and how to do it the sustainable way. Yep, that's right. You don't have to be 100% vegan in order to save the earth. You can still have quite a very powerful impact if you just choose the right kind of meats to eat. First, let me welcome all of the new members to our Eco Nation. I am so excited to have you here. I haven't done this for a while, so let me give you a rundown of basically how this podcast works. Because if you're a new listener, you probably don't understand how it works yet. So let me explain. Basically, the philosophy with this podcast is that you're not going to do the sustainable thing perfectly. And we get that. And you don't have to be a tree-hugging vegan hippie in a tiny house on your own farmstead, raising animals, gardening, canning everything in order to be sustainable. There are many, many other simple actions you can incorporate into your already existing daily routines that are very effective. You won't have to change your lifestyle or your house too much. These are what we call simple switches for sustainability. And to those of you who have been here for a while and you keep coming back each week, I thank you very, very much. Back to the new listeners. I will give a catch up with Kaylin segment where I let you know what's going on in my personal life. And then once we're done with that, we will focus in on the topic of the week. And in this case, it's eating meat. Then at the end, I say goodbye. As promised, here's the catching up with Kaylin section. This week, my husband informed me that where he works, they have to wear disposable smocks, which is like a cover-up over his uniform every time they go into the factory. He brought it up, hey, let's get cloth smocks and then just launder them. So instead of putting on a disposable one at the end of the day, throwing it away, getting a cloth one. My husband is starting to take sustainable action, and this is so exciting because it only took like a year and a half. So for those of you with spouses on the opposite end of the spectrum, there is hope and it can be done. You just have to get on their level. He is a meat person, so trying goat meat was a fun experiment for him, which we're not going to repeat that, by the way. But it's what got him on board and now he's got cloth smocks going for him at work. So now that is two things in two weeks that he has done that were sustainable efforts. And I am so proud of him. Another story I wanted to tell you was I had a Bed Bath & Beyond 20% off of your entire purchase coupon, which is a treasure. (laughs) When I was there, I decided to use it. I needed to go get more cloth napkins, and I didn't have time to make any, so that's what I went there for. But while I was there, I saw microfiber cloths, and I know that Norwex can be kind of pricey, and I thought, okay, I'll give this a try. I've got a coupon. And guess what? The Bed Bath & Beyond cloths? suck. They're terrible. (laughs) I didn't realize how spoiled I was with the Norix ones. And when I was using the Bed Bath & Beyond off brand or whatever, I had to scrub and scrub and scrub with a whole lot of elbow grease trying to get the dried up food off of my table. Why is there dried up food on my table? Because I have a toddler. That's why there's dried up food on my table. (laughs) 
<laughs> Anyways, it's definitely significantly easier to wipe down surfaces with the Norwex cloth. So I am going to give a shout out to Katie Ellistad. If you still want Norwex cloth, go to her Facebook page, which is Katie's Clean Haven. And let them know that you're a listener of this podcast and she'll give you a discount. Last story I wanted to share with you guys is we go for almost daily walks as a family. This past Sunday, we went for a stroll with the dog. So it was my husband, two kids, and dog. We go for a walk. And we're going down the neighborhood street. And we see a dishwasher out on the curb. And it's up ahead. It's about two, three houses up ahead. And this scrapper comes by and picks it up. Do you guys have scrappers in your neighborhood? I love scrappers. Let me tell you why. Because they will go around. Everybody will put out big trash items. And the scrapper will go through and pick up anything that is metal like dishwashers, washing machines, refrigerators, appliances, whatever scrap metal stuff you have, old lawn chairs, whatever it may be. They'll pick it up and then they'll take it to a metal recycling center and then they turn it in and they get paid cash for the metal, which is fine because it's now not in the landfill. It's getting recycled, so I'm happy about that. And they're doing all the heavy lifting, especially for all the other people who are too lazy to take it to the recycling center themselves. So I do like the scrappers and I see the scrapper come up and he's getting the dishwashing machine and we're trying, he's struggling to get up there, but he does by the time we get there, because we can't just run up there. We have everybody else in the family with us. So it took us a little bit to get up there. Of course, by the time we get there, he'd already gotten it loaded into his trailer, which is great for him. So he said, Hey, what's up? And we were friendly and we kept walking. And then the homeowner came out and he said, Hey, Hey, Hey. And he flagged down the scrapper guy before he got in the truck to drive off. And he said, just so you know, that works. That is a brand new, fully functioning dishwasher. So that caught our attention. So we stopped walking and turned around and looked right at him and listened to the rest of the conversation. He said, yeah, it completely works. I put it in, changed my mind. I didn't like how it looked and got a different one. So he bought a brand new dishwashing machine, didn't like how it looked and went and got another one. And put the first one to the curb. He didn't want to return it. He didn't want to gift it to somebody. Because we would have taken it. I don't know how old ours is. It came in this house. But it still works. (laughs) But I'm imagining maybe only for another year or two. I definitely would have swapped that out. And gotten the nice new one for free. Who wouldn't have? And then put ours out on the curb for the scrapper guy. My goodness. I don't understand the homeowner's thought process for anybody who is too lazy to return it and get their money back on a big ticket item like that. But whatever, at that point in time, we're like, well, it's too late. The scrapper already hauled it up into the trailer, so he gets it. Hopefully he was smart enough to at least resell it versus just doing scrap for cash because he would have made more money selling it. But that to me just blew my mind. (laughs) Now we will switch gears and hit our main focus topic of the day which is eating sustainable meat, how to pick and choose it, what order, which animals are more sustainable than other animals, and all of that jazz. I have for you an interview with Amanda Duncan Karlsvik. She is my niece, but she also has a master's in animal nutrition and sustainability and environmental stuff. She spits it out in the middle of the interview. She's currently living in Denmark. So there was quite a big time difference between the two of us, so we had to record this a while ago. But she's here to help explain and answer the debate on, do you have to be vegan? Can you eat meat? Which meats can you eat? And how to be more sustainable when you're purchasing your meat items. So let's give it up for Amanda. 
Hello, starting sustainability. This is episode 46 with Amanda Duncan Kalsvig. I think I said that right. <laughs> she just got married, so congratulations at the beginning of this whole corona pandemic. So welcome, Amanda. Say hello to everybody. Hello. <laughs> And today, Amanda is guest hosting on this podcast, and she is going to talk about sustainable shopping and other stuff and things. We haven't really come up with a great title for it yet. <laughs> so go ahead and take it away, Amanda. Well, shopping, but uh, I'm going to focus mostly pretty much on animal products and uh, meat buying, because I think a lot of people know about farmer's markets and usually those are great sources for, you know, fruits and vegetables. Sometimes you can also find honey and eggs, but usually options like meat and cheeses and milk are not as common in farmer's markets. At least farmer's markets I have been to. I don't know if you, Kaylin, if you've had some better luck at farmer's markets finding stuff like that for you. Oh yeah, we should probably take this opportunity to clarify. Amanda has a very unique perspective because she was born and raised in Chicago and has traveled around the U.S., but she's currently living in Denmark and has been there for two, three years? Uh, almost four now. Almost four years. Wow. Time really has gone yeah. fast. Yeah. So you're able to give like the American and a European point of view on this, which is fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to try and talk a little bit broadly in a way that uh, can apply to, to both, but some things are probably more applicable to De America or to Denmark. But yeah, I do agree with the farmer's markets here. It is, I am able to find uh, meats and cheeses. It's like goat meat and goat cheese. I was able to find some local beef and pork, but the, the downside is, is it almost always seems a little bit more expensive which I want to support the local farmers. So I don't mind paying too much, but also our farmers markets are limited, like from yeah. Memorial day to labor day. And so now that labor day has come and gone, we don't have farmers markets anymore. Mm -hmm. Some of the programs I wanted to talk about that I think you haven't brought up yet into your podcast, but are a great way to support local farmers and a great way to get access to a wider variety of pro of uh, products. So those are CSA programs and herd share programs. What is CSA? CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. In, in Danish, the version is like a melkasse or a, a melktidskasse. And basically these programs work, they're either run by one farmer or by a group of farmers. And every week you get a box of food that is locally produced by those farmers in season. The best ones are ones where they have multiple farmers. So there might be a farmer that does meat and a farmer that does vegetables or a farmer that does dairy. And then you'll have all those different products in your box every week. And it's basically like, instead of going to the grocery store or having to go to the farmer's market, you can go and get that delivered, sometimes either delivered or you go and pick it up every week. So this would be like straight from the farmers because I'm doing the Imperfect Foods, but it's a produce delivery. You can get meat and cheese from Imperfect Foods, but it's almost always because it's surplus. It's not really from a local farmer every time. Yeah, so these are usually from either a single local farmer or a group of local farmers that are doing it. Okay. So it's a, a great way also to get stuff maybe outside of the farmer's market period. It also allows you to build more of a connection with that farmer. And herd share programs are similar, but it's more focused for dairy. 
So a herd share program is where you're essentially buying a share of a cow. <laughs> okay. I want the, I want the leg and I want the right arm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're buying a share of a, a dairy cow. And so as a partial owner of the cow, you get part of what that cow produces. So you get a certain proportion of the milk or of the butter of the cheeses produced by that cow. So this is the type of program that a lot of smaller dairies are doing because it's very difficult for small dairies to compete with uh, the industrial large-scale dairies. So smaller dairies have started doing these herd share programs where they sell directly through customers through this type of system. So you're purchasing part of the cow, but you're sharing the cow with other people. So is this more in the form of an investment or is this like a flat exchange of cash for goods? It depends on the, the farm, but I think the legality of it is, quote, you're investing in part of the cow, but it ends up being more in reality, an exchangement of cash for goods. But both of these programs, you typically pay ahead of time. So you pay for like a full year subscription. So like I pay for a share of this cow or a year in the CSA program. So it's not just like a weekly thing you choose to do or pay for. It's usually like a long-term agreement you make. Okay. So would that be a cheaper, more affordable alternative versus going to the grocery store or it's just more sustainable, more eco-friendly? Well, it can be in a way it makes it easier to budget because it's the same price for the full year or they'll break it down and you owe us this much every week and it's, but it's the same amount every week. So in a way it could be easier for budgeting. You have a better idea of how much it's exactly going to cost you to buy these type of products locally. Okay. So those are two programs that you haven't talked about much that I think are good to know about. So those programs are specifically in Europe or are they over here in the US and we just gotta look a little bit harder for them? No, so I heard about these programs during my undergraduate at Purdue University because I was working on the Purdue Student Farm, which is a small farm run by students. And so as part of that, we worked a lot with other small farmers. So that farm also ran its own CSA program. And we met with other farmers who ran herd share programs and their own CSA programs. And so that's how I learned about these type of programs being available. Is there a website or someplace to go to see if there's one near me or for somebody who's in Michigan or Ohio or Texas, if there's one near them? There's not necessarily like a central website, but it is very searchable. So some CSA programs are massive and you can very easily find them. I would suggest just doing sort of a search like CSA program in your town or your local area and you can hopefully find some information there. You might also talk to farmers at farmer's markets, and sometimes they also have CSA programs in addition to going and selling at farmer's markets. Listeners of the podcast, if anybody is good at developing apps or website, there's your million dollar idea. Come up with an app where it's easy to find these things. Yeah, I know when I was at Purdue, there was talks of Indiana trying to make a uh, central website for this sort of thing, but I don't know if they ever did or if it went anywhere. (laughs) But if you can't make it to the farmer's market or maybe there's not these type of programs around, there are still decisions that every person can make in their own town or in their own grocery store. 
there are still independent butcher shops people can go to. They're hard to find, but they do exist still. Going off of Dr. Benton was talking about, I definitely encourage people to buy local and go into those local butcher shops. The benefit with those two is oftentimes they don't use as much plastic packaging as, you know, your typical supermarket. And they might use more of like the butcher paper. And often if you bring in your own container, they'll be more willing to just use the container you bring in instead of using disposable packaging. Oh, that's very good points. I didn't think about that. When we were in Texas, there was a meat market right there in the same town in New Braunfels. But here in Franklin, Indiana, we there is not one nearby. I believe there is a meat market up in Indianapolis, but that's over an hour drive. So it's not simple. It's a special trip to get up there, but it would be worth it if you can buy a good amount and then just freeze it. Mm-hmm. Even if you go into your typical normal grocery store, if you go to the butcher's counter, some places will allow you to use your own container. So if you bring a Tupperware container or one of those silicone bags and you're planning to maybe buy a bunch of ground meat or chicken or something and freeze it, you can ask them to use your container instead of their disposable packaging. Because really all you need is the sticker that they print out and put on it. That is very true. Very good point. So that's something I think most people don't know that they can do. That's a great way to reduce the amount of plastic you take home from the grocery store. Besides that, another thing to also look at is what type of meat are you buying? There's definitely differences in the type of meat on how sustainable and environmentally friendly it is. Rabbit and poultry are actually the most sustainable, environmentally friendly meat that you can buy. I don't think I've ever seen or have ever had the chance to purchase rabbit out of all the places that I lived. (laughs) Is that a common thing in Europe? (laughs) It is definitely much more common in Europe than it is in America, because I will agree when I was in America, not something you find in Europe or in parts of Europe, rabbit is still very large thing. So for example, here, uh, Poland and many other Eastern European countries, rabbit is a large market there and they have large production. Um, And rabbit is actually, it really is a super sustainable meat because if you think about it, they produce tons of babies every year. Their babies grow very quickly and their food source is mostly grass. So you have a very low environmentally intensive feed that you feed them. And so the effect of that is that you have a meat that is low in terms of its carbon footprint, in terms of how much water it requires and how much energy goes into making that kilo of meat. And rabbits are smaller animals, so they don't take up as much space as cattle. Exactly. You can produce a lot more meat in a year in a smaller amount of space with rabbits. Now, here's an interesting question for you. Amanda, I've known you your whole life because you're younger than me. (laughs) You own bunny rabbits as pets for a long, long time. I have two rabbits right now. (laughs) So do you eat rabbit? I do eat rabbit. <laughs> do your rabbits know that you eat rabbit? Um, well, when they're very naughty, I do threaten them. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
What does rabbit meat taste like? I've never had it. It's really good. It's very lean and very white in color. I know everyone says that like every meat tastes like chicken that you haven't eaten before, but it is almost like a mix between pork and chicken, you know, because it's, it's a little bit more of that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When you have like wild, an- when you eat wild animals, game, game, it has a little bit, yeah, a little bit more of that game flavor to it, but that depends a lot on how it's raised, whether it's wild rabbit or farmed rabbit. So it has a little bit of a stronger flavor to it than chicken, but it looks a lot like chicken because it's very white in color and is small. Is it versatile like chicken? Like you can grill it or stew it or shred it and make a chicken salad or rabbit salad. Like it's, it's a pretty versatile meat. You could do lots of different things with it. Yeah, it's rather uh, similar. Okay. I haven't worked a whole lot with the rabbit, to be honest. I've only had it a couple of times in my life. I've always had a good experience with it. I like it personally, but I do know what you mean that a lot of people kind of have that aversion because some people view rabbits as just being pets, which is fine, but it is also a very sustainable meat source. You know, I was thinking here in the U.S., even though we don't really have it in the stores, but a lot of people will hunt rabbit and get it that way. So Mm -hmm. just the wild rabbit. We don't have a lot of farm-raised rabbits that are sold for me. Although I did visit a farm that had a bunch of rabbits and they collected all the poo and sold the poo as fertilizer. Apparently that's a really good quality fertilizer over any other animal. And that was the main purpose of the rabbit. They didn't mention that they butchered them. They just mentioned (laughs) using their poo for fertilizer and making money that way. Well, yeah, because rabbit poop, the nice thing with rabbit poop is that it's dry. It's really dry. So it stores very easily compared to pig or cow poo, which is very wet. So then you end up with like a slurry pit. That's just a long list of environmental concerns. (laughs) All right, we'll change topics off of poo now. But anyways... (laughs) But if you're not so willing to eat your furry pet, poultry is just as good as rabbit in uh, terms of sustainability. Because again, they produce tons of offspring. They're small. You don't need a lot of land space. They have very, they grow quickly. They don't have large of a carbon footprint. Beef is definitely the worst. (laughs) And I think most people know that. (laughs) That was going to be my next question. Which one's the worst? And I was like, probably beef. (laughs) Definitely beef. Dang, that's really what we eat the most of over here. (laughs) So poultry and swine are the best. Beef is by far the worst. Swine and small ruminants like uh, your your sheep and your goats are, are somewhere in between. Just a quick detour to seafood. The Monterey Bay Aquarium has a seafood watch website and app that you can download. And you when you're buying seafood or sushi, you can search the fish and it will tell you how sustainable or environmentally friendly that fish is. You know, I actually did know that. I learned that last November because November is Sustainable Seafood Month. So I did learn that, but I don't think that I ever mentioned it on the podcast, which was really silly of me. So thank you very much for bringing that up now. That's very good information to have. Yeah, it's very easy to use, and I think it's great because there's just so many fish species out there, and sometimes farming's better, sometimes wild caught is better, and it's 
this is kind of a great, simple way to find that information without having to do tons and tons of research yourself. The last thing I have on my list that you had also briefly mentioned you wanted to talk about was the cow's milk versus goat milk debate. Yeah. (laughs) I've never tried goat milk. I've tried goat cheese and it's very astringent, but not goat milk. Goat milk definitely has that musky smell to it and taste to it. And that also can depend a lot on the, the breed of the goat. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have to sort of preface this by saying my background is working with poultry and swine. Yeah, we didn't say that. My, I have a master's in sustainable animal nutrition and feeding. And my background in research has only really been with poultry and swine. So milk is a little bit outside of my forte. But for this podcast, I did go through and read some articles to get a better background on it because I knew you wanted to talk about this. Well, at this point, you're definitely more of an expert than I am, so take the lead. (laughs) It does seem like this is actually quite a debate, whether we should stick to cows or we should get rid of all the cows and change over to goats. (laughs) And I think the biggest argument is just the volume of yield. If you're a small farm, goats make a whole lot more sense because they do have a smaller carbon footprint. They don't take as much space. They're a smaller animal. They're less picky eaters, so it's much easier to feed them and feed them cheap feed. But they do not produce nearly as much milk as a cow. They produce only about two to three liters of milk a day, whereas cows will produce about eight to 12 liters of milk a day. So you would have to get four to five goats to be equivalent to one cow. Yes. Okay. So you kind of have to weigh out, like if you're going to start your own homestead or start your own farm, you'd have to kind of weigh out the costs and the benefits of four to five goats versus one cow. Yeah. And so if you're looking at then, okay, should the whole world change to goats and scaling that up, that's quite a significant difference. For every cow you change out, you have to replace it with four goats. That's a whole lot more animals we're talking about. Yeah. So I I think in practicality, I don't think it makes sense to say everybody should go out and just buy goat's milk and never buy cow's milk. I don't think that's plausible. But I think for if you're a small farmer or you want to start doing backyard farming, goats do make a lot of sense in terms of that. But I think in terms of industrial farming, there's a reason why we use cows. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Speaking nutrition wise, goat milk is much more easily digestible. It's more comparable to, to human like breast milk. It's much more comparable to that. So when it comes to baby formula or even grown adults, doing a goat version of the formula or goat milk is much more digestible. So those who have lactose intolerance with cow's milk, they find goat milk much better. And it's still a healthier milk nutrition profile overall, cholesterol wise and all of that stuff. It is more nutritious, I should say. It's more nutritious and easier to digest versus the cow's milk. But cost wise and accessibility wise, at least in the U.S., cow's milk was a whole lot easier to, to get to and more affordable. I don't know in Europe if goat milk is easily available, like in stores, or if you can only Not get it at really. farmer's markets. Okay. 
No, it's pretty. I mean, you'll find goat cheeses, but it's pretty much also cow's milk here as well. I, I think for the same reasons, just because of the, the volume difference. Yeah, and I, I am lactose intolerant, so I definitely am a fan of goat's milk and goat cheeses because of that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is more difficult to find. And like you said, it typically is more expensive. So you can still get it. You're just not going to eat it in mass quantities. You're just going to have a, <laughs> it's quality versus quantity at that point. You just get what you can and you savor every bit of it. Yeah. And I think the thing too, that everyone talks about reason why this debate comes up is because people look at how much cows produce in terms of methane and carbon dioxide emissions so then the argument, people then say, okay, well, why don't we just change everything to goats? Thing to also really look at that people don't look at is how much we have improved methane emissions and the amount of water and land that cows need over the last hundred years or so. So compared to the pre-industrialized farming, so about 1944-ish, uh, nowadays, modern dairy uses 23% less feed and 35% less water per kilo of milk and about a third of the carbon dioxide footprint per kilo of milk compared to the pre-industrial farming. So we have made vast improvements on the agricultural system and also a lot of that has to do with genetics and better animal nutrition. And that's made a huge difference on the sustainability and the environmental uh, impact of animal farming. And I think in the future, that's going to be what really makes the biggest difference is the science and the research uh, going into those areas. That is really awesome to hear that because that's one of the biggest debates that our farming practices are terrible. So I'm glad to hear that we are making improvements in the farming practices in order to feed the world. That's awesome. I just had a random thought. Well, you're talking about the goat milk and you said it was off of the breed of the goat. And then we just kept talking and, and I wanted to ask which breed is going to have a better tasting milk. Do you know? That I don't know. I okay. can name like only three goat breeds and that's it. Okay. <laughs> like I said, go goats and uh, ruminants are, are not my area. So. <laughs> well, that's three more goat breeds than what I can name. <laughs> I don't think I can name one goat breed. There's the furry goat. There's the short goat. There's the... Hold on. Wait, wait. There's fainting goats and there are pygmy goats. So I've got two actual breeds that I can name. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up at all? I mean, I could talk about uh, like questions I get asked a lot because of my background. I don't know if you have specific questions you want to ask me and probe me about. Let's do, let's do like your top three most commonly asked questions. One I definitely get asked a lot about is... Do we give animals steroids? <laughs> oh, that is a very good question. Especially chickens, because people see this a lot when they come from countries where they might have lo used local breeds of chickens, like African countries or certain Asian countries. And then they see the big American European chickens and they go, oh my God, they must be giving them steroids. 
no, we are not giving them steroids. We have never given them steroids. It's just that we have really increased the genetics so that they grow so much bigger, so much faster. However, the problem with that is that we now have lots of problems with broken legs, wings. They can't walk very well because we've grown them too big. Oh, what do you know about the RBGH? The recumbent bovine growth, well, okay, never mind. That's bovine. So that would be cow. Yeah. So that growth hormone, it used to be used a lot because basically it was, it's a natural growth hormone that cows produce. Um, It's basically like the lactation hormone. So farmers started giving it to the cows to increase milk yield, but then people freaked out about the fact that they were giving cows hormones. So that has basically faded out of existence. So I know at least in the American, I think in the European market, it's outlawed. Uh, In the American market, it's not necessarily outlawed, but nobody uses it. Yeah, that is something at work because we feed, I'm in a factory setting with six different factories. So all the cafes in there, well, before coronavirus shut us down. Anyways, that was something that we bragged about was that all of our milk was RBGH free, milk and yogurt. So nobody had to worry about that. And then, of course, most of the customers of the cafe didn't even know what that was. So I spent more time explaining what it was (laughs) and then had to explain, but don't worry, we don't have it. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things that was a big deal, probably like... uh five, 10 years ago, but now it's just phased out of the industry because people got upset about it that uh, nobody uses it anymore anyways. So what are the the other two top two questions that you get asked? Um, People also like to ask about um, antibiotics use in animal production. That is a good question also. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we're going with your common questions versus mine. that depends a whole lot on country. (laughs) So in Europe, it's way, way, way more restricted than in America. So pretty much in Europe, it's not given at all antibiotics unless the animal is really sick. And most of the time, depending on the type of animal, so like chickens, they probably won't even give them antibiotics. They might just wipe the whole flock and start over again, depending on what the, how bad the infection was. Cows, because they're a bigger animal that takes so long, and mastitis, which is uh, an infection in the mammary gland, is so common. They often treat it with antibiotics, but they'll only treat it when they're having that infection, only treat that quarter of the udder, and that milk is all thrown away. It's not put into the food system. And that mastitis, that's no joke for anybody who's ever done breastfeeding. Mastitis is real. It's painful and it's miserable. And yes, give the cow an antibiotic and relieve pain because that's horrible. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really common. There's really no way to go get around it other than to treat them. And I promise the antibiotics is not in the milk. They test the milk regularly. If there's any trace amounts of it, it's all thrown away. No, it's not in your milk. But in America, feeding antibiotics is a growth promoter. It was very common when I was still in America, but right when I left, the veterinary feed directive just came into law, which did make it such that feeding antibiotics now required a veterinarian prescription. 
but I don't know how much that has actually affected the practice of using antibiotics as a feed, as a growth promoter. And when I say feeding antibiotics as a growth promoter, that's primarily referring to the poultry industry and I don't think so much the swine, definitely not dairy and beef. So that's something I don't quite know of how it's being done in America just because they had this big law change right before I left. So that's a big topic I get asked about. And then I think the third one is about when they do give medicines to animals, how do I know that the medicine isn't in the meat or the animal product? The answer to that is every medication that you give an animal, if you do give them one, has withdrawal period on it. Withdrawal period means that, so for example, with meat, say the withdrawal period is 30 days. That means from the slaughter date, you cannot give this medication anymore to any animals 31 days out from that date. And that withdrawal period is based off of tons and tons of studies showing that the medication is no longer can be found in the meat after that period of time. So what kind of medication other than antibiotics would you be giving like a cow or a pig? I'll do a pig because I worked on a pig farm. I remember there was, I think it was a local steroid that we would give to pigs that were having walking troubles because sometimes pigs would like sit on each other and then injure the other pig and they would have troubles walking. And so we would give them a medication to try and help that leg heal. And of course, pull them out from that pen and put them in like a sick pen. That makes more sense. Cause I'm like, okay, so say a pig is going to get slaughtered September 30th and come August 28th, 29th, if they're going to get sick and need medication, then you as the farmer would have to make a decision. Do I give them medicine? And then they, then I can't slaughter them or do I just slaughter them now? So I don't have to give medication. Like what's the thought through the farmer's mind, but I didn't even think about just like a simple injury, like getting sat on because pigs are heavy. Pigs weigh a lot. They can crush like if you as a human get sat on, they will crush you. <laughs> yeah. And pigs are not very nice to each other. <laughs> they fight a lot. They love to sit on each other. And the problem too, is when you have one that's injured, they're going to all pile onto that one because it's clearly the weakest now. So it's, it's beneficial to pull them out and treat them a little bit. So yeah, when I'm saying like treat them and give them medicine, it's not necessarily like they have a serious infection or a virus or something. It's, it can be something just like a, a leg injury or s something like that. That makes more sense. How much does a pig weigh? Which is, I know is a rough question because there's all sorts of different breeds of pigs, but like the ones that would injure each other, just to kind of give the, the listeners of the podcast, like a, an idea. It's one of those where the a the weight that we slaughter them at isn't the same as like a full-grown pig weight. Oh, okay. And it also depends a whole lot on country. So some countries will grow them up because they'll usually grow them up to a certain size and it depends a lot on the market what size they want. So some places want a smaller size pig. Some places want a bigger size pig. The American market typically wants a bigger pig. Um, some Asian and European markets typically want a smaller pig. Let's go with the larger pig that can cause damage. 
How big is the biggest pig? How big is the biggest pig? <laughs> yes. <laughs> On average. <laughs> well, everything is in uh, kilos here. So um, it looks like about like two to 300 pounds. Okay. Yeah. So they can, they can definitely cause some serious damage. Yeah. And the thing too is it's not just one sitting on one. It might be like two or three pigs sitting on one pig. Yeah, being a farmer is tough because they're not just mean to each other. Like they'll be mean to the humans taking care of them. So you have to be very careful as a farmer corralling pigs and transferring pens. Oh yeah, you do not want to fall down in the pig pen. They will start eating you. That was that was my next question. And then I was like, maybe I shouldn't ask that. I'm like, I've heard that pigs can eat an entire human because I think it came from some some movie somewhere where they're like, they would kill the person and feed them to the pigs. That way there was no trace of the murder. I'm like, will they really eat an entire human? Pigs pretty much will eat anything. They are omnivores like we are. Same with chickens, actually. Chickens, if you have a dead chicken in your barn and you don't find it fast enough, you will just find some bones and feathers. Same with pigs. You will find a partially eaten pig. Oh, wow. They absolutely. Will chickens attack humans? Not so much. They usually run away from you when you okay. are walking through the barn. But Pigs, it's, you get like 50-50, like some pigs will run away from you and some pigs will come up and legit attack you. They will bite you. They will, they love to do this thing where they put their head between your legs and just thrash about really quickly to try and knock you over. Wow. That's a great way to ruin your kneecaps. Yeah. <laughs> Oy. <laughs> chickens are scary though. I mean, obviously pigs are way worse, but chickens are no joke scary one of the <laughs> it's a very fearsome moment dawn and john dawn is my sister which is now amanda's aunt. amanda's my niece i don't think i said that earlier on the episode and no. <laughs> I, they they went out of town and i had to watch their very small farmstead and i had to get the eggs from the chickens every day and that was the pure terror <laughs> every day i hated that part trying to get the eggs from the chickens because they're always like pecking at my hands <laughs> That, I developed some real courage <laughs> that week. <laughs> well, we are out of time at this point, but thank you, Amanda, very much for sharing all of your insights with us. I knew what you had your degree in, and I kind of sort of knew what you were doing as your job. So thank you very much for sharing like all of the insight and knowledge that you have with everybody and clearing up a lot of the conversation when it comes to eco and sustainability. I think a lot of people have the understanding in order to do this right, I have to become vegan. And although that is probably the most extreme 100% effective way, you can still eat meat and you can still be sustainable while doing it. So I appreciate you sharing all the tips on how to do that the right way. Yeah, it was a trade to do this. This was a cool th opportunity. Yeah, so it's um, five o'clock my time. And so it is what time for you? 11 at night. All right. Well, I will let you go to bed then. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Well, take care. Thank you. Thanks, Kaylin. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you again, Amanda, for taking the time to meet with us and educate us on everything that we discussed. I hope everybody learned something from that interview. And now when you go out to eat at a restaurant or when you go to the farmer's market, when you go grocery shopping at your store, you'll make some wiser decisions, some more sustainably conscious decisions 
when it comes to purchasing your meat. Don't forget, you can go to www.startingsustainability.com slash episode 46 if you want to get show notes on this. If you have feedback or additional questions, there are multiple ways for you to ask questions or give us your feedback. You can email me, which would be kaylin, K-A-Y-L-I-N, at startingsustainability.com. Or you can go to the Facebook group, which is Starting Sustainability. You can post your question or your feedback there. You can also direct message me and just ask your question that way, whatever you are more comfortable with. I hope everybody continues to have a wonderful rest of your day. Please continue to stay sustainable. And as always, I will talk to you again next week. Bye.